gracious Heavenly Father, you are beautiful. We thank you for this beautiful day that you bless us with. And we thank you that we can all gather together in fellowship and worship of you. God, we ask for your blessings on this and that everything would work as it's supposed to. God, you are gracious, gracious beyond all measure. Please bless our, our worship today. Amen. You may have a seat. All right, thank you. You know, this time of year is a lot of fun. The snow is just about gone. Temperatures are warming up a little bit. And if you're like me and grew up on a farm, you start to get a little bit itchy to get out in the field and dig in the dirt. It's time for the field to be prepared, or at least it's getting really close. And farmers get, get anxious about getting out in the fields, preparing the soil, preparing to grow their crops. We all come from different backgrounds, and that's a, that's a little bit of mine. But one of the things that I learned during my time of growing up on the farm is that farmers don't always own all the land that they farm. In fact, it is very common that they rent some of the land that they're farming. Now, one form of this uh, rental agreement that used to be much more common than it is now was the form of renting on shares, as in the farmer who is actually doing all the work of farming when it comes time for the harvest, they get, you know, let's just say, two-thirds of the profit. And then the other share, the other third, goes to the person who actually owns the land. It, it seems like a reasonable arrangement. Uh, these days, it's much more common that it's just a cash per acre of ground that you rent. It seems like it's all done in good, proper order. Now, in the scripture passage that we'll be studying today, we'll find that Jesus is telling another parable. As you know, we've been going through some of the parables of Jesus uh, in recent weeks, and that trend will be continuing, so you have a little bit of an idea of what to look forward to. But in this particular parable that Jesus is sharing, it, it includes a landowner who is dealing with some tenants, some renters or caretakers that have been in place of caring for this vineyard. And these guys are not interested in paying their fair share of the fruits of the harvest. Now in this text are included the description of a vineyard, a vineyard that has been leased to tenants to care for it. And when the fruit is ready for harvest, those tenants that have been working the vineyard are to give the owner of the vineyard his share of the profits, what is rightfully owed to him according to law. If you have your Bibles with you today, I would encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 21, and we'll be starting at verse 33, Matthew 21, 33. And as you're turning there, I just wanted to mention that the context for this particular passage, if you look back a few verses, is you'll find that the religious leaders have been challenging the authority of Jesus. In fact, They've seen Jesus, they've heard his teachings, they've even seen some of his miracles, and the miracles he's performed, and heard about all the rest of his teachings and miracles, and they're not big fans. In fact, they are looking for a way to get rid of Jesus. They had rejected him. 
and they were seeking for ways to discredit him. Let's look at verse 33 of the text. Matthew 21, 33. It says, hear another parable. This is Jesus speaking. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and then went into another country. So in the first verse of this text then, Matthew lays out the picture of a vineyard and immediately bringing to mind for some of us the text from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, which is the vineyard of the Lord. And in that parable, the nation of Israel is presented in the form of a vineyard. It's, it's a very powerful word picture. Unfortunately, that vineyard bore rotten fruit, representing the fruits, spiritual fruit, that the nation of Israel had borne, fruit that was unpleasing to the Lord. Here, in this parable, the reference is not specifically to the nation of Israel as a whole, but, but rather to the rulers and leaders of Israel, and through them, representing the, all the people that had rejected Jesus. Now we see the, the vineyard was completely set up, had everything needed to produce good fruit. And Israel, just the same, they had everything necessary for their religious needs. God had provided it all from the temple all the way down. And referring back to Isaiah 5, verse 4, for, for just a moment, that verse is a beautiful summary of, of what God had provided. It simply says this, What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? It's, it's kind of like God is saying, What more can I do for you than what I've already done? So we understand then that in this parable, it is God who is the landowner, who has planted the vineyard. Now, the picture of, a, of the master or owner of the vineyard leaving and going into another country, that points to the great trust and also responsibility that God had placed on the leaders of Israel to care for his vineyard, which is representative of God's people, God's precious people. We know that... The, in the Old Testament, you can read many stories about how God had provided for the nation of Israel. And one of those that stands out that I'm sure all of you are probably familiar with would be how God brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt, out of, from under the oppressive bondage of slavery. We have the, the story of the, the parting of the Red Sea. And, and then God even went so far as to provide a land, a place for them to live, to dwell. What a tremendous responsibility then that God had placed on these leaders of his people throughout their history. Well, let's step ahead to verse 34. Matthew 21, 34. When the season for fruit drew near, he, referring to the landowner, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. Well, the master of the vineyard had prepared and planted the vineyard. And he put these caretakers in place and now sends his servants to collect his share of the harvest. The fruit that was produced, that was due him. So far, things seem like they're going according to plan. The vineyard was prepared. It was left in the care of tenants who were tasked with watching over the vineyard and ensuring that it would grow and be healthy and produce fruit. And now it's time for harvest. Verse 35 then. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned 
another. Clearly, we see that there's a change here. The problems have begun. The master of the vineyard, the one who owns the land and the entire vineyard, sends his servants to collect the fruit of the harvest. It seems appropriate. But instead of sending the required payment back with the servants, the people caring for the vineyard did something quite shocking. They took the servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Look ahead with me to verse 36. What does he do? What is the owner of the vineyard's response to this treatment of his servants? Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. So what we see here is that this time a larger group of servants is sent. Maybe the logic behind that would be something along the lines of there's their strength in numbers. So, so they'll respect this group of servants. Clearly the an indication that the landowner is serious about this. But once again, they are mistreated. They're killed. Now, what is your first response when you, when you read about how the tenants have acted, how these, these caretakers of the vineyard have treated the servants? Have you ever skipped out on paying your rent? Well, this, this is something that goes far beyond that. Not only did they not pay their rent, but, but the people who came to collect the rent were beaten and killed. Can you imagine? What would happen if such a thing transpired today? I'm, I'm no expert, but I would think that there would be a quite swift response. Maybe some law enforcement would be involved, and there would probably be some prison time. In some parts of the world, something maybe even more severe. But what is your personal response when you see what's happening in the story? What has happened? Perhaps your sense of justice was pricked because those tenants are acting unjustly, not only by withholding what is due to the owner, but also by how they treated those servants. I'm sure you've all heard the saying, don't kill the messenger. Well, clearly the tenants in this parable did not follow those guidelines. Now, seemingly from birth, from our very beginning, we have in us a sense of justice, a, and a comprehension on some level of the difference between right and wrong. As a child, if you're playing with a toy and somebody takes that toy away from you, how do you feel? What do you see, parents, what do you see in your kids of whatever ages when this happens? Depending on their personality, some of them probably get upset and maybe even go seek out some justice for their lost toy. When we read these verses, we know that what is going on is wrong because it is unjust. But there's more. There's much more. Let's read on. Verse 37 of the text says, Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. Seriously? I mean, have these tenants, these, these caretakers of the vineyard done anything to make us believe that they would treat his son any differently than they had treated the first group of servants or the second group of servants? You're kidding, right? Who in their right mind would even think of doing such a thing? Verses 38 and 39. In those verses, we see the true nature of the tenants on full display. Follow along with me. But when the tenants saw the son... They said to themselves, this is the heir. 
Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. So when they saw the landowner's son, when they, when they saw that he was coming, they didn't respect him. They didn't respect his status or who he is. Instead, they plan and execute a premeditated murder. That's the worst kind. See, these tenants, they, they take the owner's son, they drag him outside of the vineyard, and they kill him. Now, judging by the previous behavior of these people, we shouldn't be surprised. But at the same time, there is something different here, something that, that makes us pause. Because there's a distinct difference between beating someone or maybe even some sort of an accidental death that may result from that. There's something different between that versus premeditated murder. They saw the son, the heir, coming to the vineyard. They planned out exactly what they were going to do every step. And they purposefully murdered him. And, and to what end? What was their goal, their, their end game? Well, they were blinded to the truth because of their greed and selfishness. And, and there's definitely an aspect to that in the story which should not be ignored. The, the way the tenants behaved, you might think that they expected that through their actions that they would get the vineyard and the fruit of its harvest all to themselves. We understand that greed and selfishness are sins. That seems clearly obvious. If you look back to the Ten Commandments, you can read verses like, Thou shalt not covet, which means to not selfishly desire what someone else has. Selfish ambition and greed all too often and all too easily cause us to forget God's presence. When there's a focus purely on self, then God gets pushed out, out of the picture. But even more significant, even more significant in the parable is that the, the, these tenants, the, the renters or caretakers of this vineyard, by their actions, they show not only that they are greedy and selfish, but they show that they are rejecting the owner of the vineyard. They're rejecting the, the master, their master, their landlord. They're rejecting his authority, and they want the place to themselves. In reality, what this means is that they want to be their own masters. They want to be the masters. So, in effect, they are rejecting both him and his authority in their lives. Now, some people struggle with authority figures in their life. I'm sure none of us here have ever dealt with that, right? How about parents? Yeah, I know there's a lot of parents out there. Almost all parents, at some point in time, face challenges to their authority. And there are some blessed children that seem to have a tendency to challenge the parents' authority almost on a daily basis, prompting authors to write books such as The Strong-Willed Child or You Can't Make Me, But I Can Be Persuaded, things along those lines. These books were written for parents who are dealing with just that type of an issue, the challenges to their authority. You know, we strive to be independent. We want to be in control. We want to be the ones in charge overseeing our own lives, not anyone else. Why? Because we don't like being told what to do. We also don't like being told what we can't do. We want to make those decisions for ourselves. And that tends to happen when we focus too much on self instead of others. Too much on ourselves 
instead of in God. Now let's go back and, and look at some of the er various items in this parable. The vineyard itself is not the main focal point, but it is more of a, a, a reference, a reference to God's provision for his chosen people, which we know initially were the people of Israel. God had chosen his people, and he had set them apart as his very own. The landowner in this parable, the landowner who planted the vineyard is God. Now these, depending on what translation you have, You'll read about the wicked tenants or vine dressers or caretakers of the vineyard. They, uh, they represent Israel's leaders, the chief priests, scribes, and elders, and, and all their followers. Now the servants, the servants sent on behalf of the landowner, are commonly understood by most biblical commentators to, to be a reference to prophets. Prophets throughout the Bible that God has sent to his people sent to deliver his message. Also in the parable, maybe the most obvious part of it is the landowner's son, the heir, that is representative of Jesus Christ himself. But let's, let's take a look specifically at these servants that are represented in the parable. Because it's a common pattern, it's, and it's significant throughout the history of the nation of Israel. Now, as a nation, Israel had rejected many of the prophets. Many of the people that God had sent to Israel for that purpose had been rejected. And if we can look at examples such as Chronicle, 2 Chronicles chapter 36, where verses 15 and 16 read, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Looking at the New Testament, an example can be found in Mark chapter 6, where it's recorded that King Herod had John the Baptist beheaded. These are just a couple of examples of how the nation of Israel had rejected the prophets that the Lord had sent to them. Looking ahead to Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 and 38, see Jesus' response to this. Jesus laments this mistreatment of God's messengers. It says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And finally, in the parable that Jesus told, the heir is Jesus himself, and Jesus, in this parable, he prophesies about what they are going to do to him. The Son of God, they were going to kill Jesus. Not only did Jesus tell them what they were going to do, but they still did it. They knew what they were doing. And ultimately, in this parable, what we see is not just a representation of doubt. That may be the first response. Like, oh, they doubted who Jesus was. No, it's outright rejection. You see, doubt is one thing. And it's not uncommon that we have doubts. But outright rejecting God is altogether different. See, God's people had first 
rejected the law that the Lord had given to them. Then they had rejected the prophets that God had sent to them. Now they rejected God's own son, Jesus Christ. And what was the result? Look at verses 42 through 44 of your text. Matthew 21, starting at verse 42. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. They rejected Jesus. And they nailed him to a cross. That's a picture of sin, the sin that leads to death. The sins of the whole world were put on Jesus. Jesus took our sins and he took them to the cross. And you've maybe heard the saying before that our sin put Jesus on the cross, but it was his love, God's love, that kept him there. He didn't have to do this. He could have said no, but he submitted to God's will. And in so doing, Jesus Christ fulfilled God's plan for salvation. And that affects all of us. Because through that, through that, salvation is made available to all who accept Jesus Christ, not reject him. See, there is judgment for rejecting him. But if you reject Jesus... Keep in mind that you are rejecting the very thing that offers you salvation. God is a God of mercy and grace. And and as was referred to in this parable time and time again, God offers grace. God extends that even to those who hate him, who are his enemies. At the same time, God is also a patient God. And he's not willing that any should perish, although all who reject him will. Now the people being referred to in the parable that they chose to reject Jesus, they knew what they were doing. And so do we when we purposefully turn our backs on God. Now just as the purpose of a vineyard is to produce fruit, we are called to bear spiritual fruit, to accept his grace, be obedient to God's word, and abide in him rather than to reject him. That's our, that's our purpose to live for him, not for ourselves. Now, there's something, there's something very unreal about this story. Let's be honest. It's hard to believe. And maybe, maybe we can just call the story unbelievable. It's unbelievable that a man whose servants had been mistreated and killed by his renters would then follow that up by sending more servants. And when the same thing happened to them, that he would go so far as to send his beloved son to try to collect a share of the harvest that was due him. However, this unreal and unbelievable story does also illustrate the incredible patience of God. It's hard for us to to comprehend that God would send his son, his one and only son, into the world after seeing how his people had treated the prophets that he had sent throughout their history. And knowing, and knowing 
would, how they would treat his son. Yet he sent his son anyway. Think about that. See, whilst it is unreal to think that those tenants who murdered the son should expect to take possession of his inheritance, especially when the owner of the vineyard is still alive. It is unreal to think that Jesus gave his life on the cross so that you might have life. But he did. He really did. And the world has never been the same. This text includes a severe warning for all who reject Jesus. And we look at the story and say, oh, those guys in the parable, they clearly rejected Jesus. They rejected the heir, which represents Jesus, God's son. Then we, we look at these religious leaders, the leaders of the God's chosen people, and say, yes, those guys, those guys did it wrong. That's unjust. They rejected Jesus. And then we think about our lives. We reject Jesus in our homes. We reject Jesus in our society, in our schools. What's happened? Take prayer out of schools. <clears throat> Take Bibles out of schools. We think about the lawmakers and rules and regulations of the land. Well, if nothing is of God's word, then the truth becomes whatever anyone decides. There's no baseline. And yet, and yet, after we have rejected God out of our lives, after we have rejected the salvation of Jesus Christ, we still have the audacity to look at God and say, where were you when I needed you? Where were you? The law of the Lord is harsh. In Matthew 21, verse 44, we read, And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. As Jesus warned his audience, all who reject him will be judged and will be guilty. But God's chosen people, God's chosen people rejected Jesus. They rejected the gospel, the good news of life through Christ. What happened? Well, historically, the gospel was then given to the Gentiles. And that was extended then to all who put their trust in the Lord. That's the gospel. The gospel promise is sweet. The gospel is the good news that God, that God, through the Lord Jesus, freely gives eternal life to all who will receive it. Don't ever reject Jesus, but do claim the promise of life through Jesus Christ. Please bow with me. Most gracious Heavenly Father, you are beautiful, as we sang a little bit ago. You are full of mercy and grace and patience. And it is beyond our understanding that you would sacrifice your son, that you would give your son for me and for us. Yet you did. And the world is changed forever. God, please forgive us for those times when we have rejected you. Those times when we do reject you. It's all too easy, God, to, to look at you and say, Oh, I want you on Sunday mornings to be the center of my life. And I'm going to reject you the rest of the time. And I'm going to be the God of my life. God, forgive us. 
and help us to accept your mercy and grace. The grace that you freely have offered, the gospel of love. God, please bless this day. Amen.